Hello, everyone. This is Chris coming to you once again. Hey, can you believe we made it to Friday? So I'm so excited for today's topic for two reasons. One, because I love sharing my story, my experience, my perspective with you guys. And also, this is a topic to, well, I guess today's topic is something that I've been thinking about for a very long time. It's something that I've been kind of processing and just deciding whether or not it was worth sharing and if it was worth sharing, just how much to share with you. Because as you know, a lot of the content that I share on my podcast is aimed and geared for the undocumented community. I mean, really what I'm hoping to do is to bring to light the issues, the many issues that a dreamer can experience, especially you know, the young dreamers, the DACA kids, um, the young ones who are new to the program, you know, a lot of the questions they might have are, how can I go to school? How can I buy my first home? How can I save for retirement when I'm an undocumented person? Can I even save for retirement? What about, you know, stories of trauma and the things that I went through? Is there anybody who understands how I feel? So, these are the types of experiences that, that I think are worth communicating and worth sharing. And that's essentially why, you know, I decided to start this podcast was to provide people that opportunity. Now, I understand that there may be some who may not connect with the content of this podcast. And hey, that's okay. You know, again, this is just to share a story and do with it with what you must. My hope is that those that are listening to this podcast can share the stories, share the, the podcast itself with friends, family, advocates, people who maybe have questions about the dreamer experience and don't really know, you know, who to ask. Or maybe in some cases where it's like, you know, they may have an advocate, but then that advocate just doesn't know fully how to support their friend who's undocumented, right? And I think that's another element that, you know, hopefully this podcast will be able to capture is the story of the friend's of undocumented people. So if you're listening to this podcast and you feel like you would like to share your story, please connect with me. Let me know exactly what you would like to share, your story, and the message that you hope to communicate to the rest of our community. Because again, if we don't share our stories, we're just going to continue to deal with the oppression, deal with the challenges, deal with the struggles of what it is to be undocumented. And if you're like me and you want to provide a different perspective, a different talking point to the experience, then my goal here is to continue to do that. And so as I mentioned before, today's podcast episode is about a topic that if you're a dreamer, if you're an undocumented immigrant, is going to be one that's very familiar. For me, it's one that I've thought about tremendously. And here it goes. So the title of today's podcast is called, I Do, The Only Way Out. And the reason why I chose this is because for many of us, saying I do is the only way we're able to adjust our status. It's the only way we're able to become what is, for lack of a better term, called normal. So first and foremost, for me, I want to make it very clear that I got married to my high school sweetheart, my current wife, out of love, and not for papers. She's the love of my life, and I married her because I wanted a future with her, not because she was able to get me papers. I just want to make that clear. So with that being the case, as I mentioned in a previous post or in a previous podcast, my parents would always remind me, and they would tell me that I was from here, the United States, 
Utah specifically. Or they would say things like, Te tienes que casar con una americana o una gringa, which loosely translates means you should get married to a white girl, presumably American. And again, as a kid, I didn't know why my parents were telling me this. I had some suspicions of why, but I mean, I didn't really put too much time or uh, too much effort thinking about it. I mean, because the last thing I was thinking about in middle school was who I was going to marry. I mean, I wasn't some lovesick guy. I wasn't thinking about proposing with roses and a beautiful diamond ring. My mind was focused on playing sports, video games, and getting into mischief with my friends. So the last thing I was thinking about was who I was going to marry. And I remember thinking this as I was told this information from my parents, I needed to get married, and thinking, how does this affect my future or or what does it mean for me in the moment and I started to think about my current family relationships and I remember thinking that I was told this because uh, as I mentioned you know my grandma and I wouldn't have a great relationship and so my grandma she would drive you know 45 minutes to go visit my cousins who live far away because you know they were white had colored eyes she would go out of her way to treat them like gold. She would go to their extreme for their birthdays with beautiful, elaborate presents, custom cakes and decorations, and hand-sewn birthday dresses. And if we were lucky, we would get a Tres Leches birthday cake and maybe a small gift from like the dollar store or Walmart. That was kind of my, my adolescence. So for me, it was hard not to feel excluded or left out when these types of things were happening in my family. Like, no joke. I thought that the reason my mom wanted me to marry a wiker was because she wanted to have grandkids with colored eyes and to appease my grandma. So hope to hopefully get her to like us a little bit more. I mean, it made sense when I looked at it in that way because I thought if my kids looked white, they would get better treatment in the family and by extension in life. Now, I know this is a toxic way to think, so don't judge me because I know there's probably a bunch of you listening to this podcast who were told kind of the same thing by your parents so don't judge me but for some reason you know when you think about it in that way there's this kind of weird fascination among not only my family but many others of having you know white looking or gringo grandkids I'll put it this way I have three aunts and two uncles who all had kids with white Americans now I say this not to intend to be racist or to make it sound discriminatory but it's the truth. You know, both my parents were Mexican and undocumented and did not look white. And we did not get the same love and care and respect as my cousins and other family members did. I reached a point in my adolescence where I believed that my kids needed to look white in order for them to have a promising future. I started focusing on only dating white girls, but the reality is I was attracted to Latinas and Hispanic women in general. Now, I'm not saying that like white girls and American girls in general aren't beautiful or attractive or anything like that. It's just that my interests leaned towards girls who shared my interests, culture, and traditions, because for me, the biggest thing is culture. Growing up in a Mexican household, we have certain practices and cultural traditions that are beautiful. And something that I highly regard. So for me, my attraction to Latinas, Mexican women, stems from these types of cultural values that are extremely important to me and the family that I wanted to create. 
And unfortunately, not everyone shares the same belief. Anytime I would express interest in a girl that was Mexican, my mom would shut that down. She would often tell me things like, Si te casas con una mexicana, vas a ver cómo te va a ir. If you don't speak Spanish, basically what she was saying is, if you don't marry a Mexican, or if you marry a Mexican, you'll see how it goes. Now, when you're a young person and you hear something like that, that's not very encouraging, but that's what I was told when I was younger. So dating in my youth became kind of a mental weapon that was always used against me. I was not allowed to date anyone who my mom disapproved of. I had to do things in secret because it was the only way to get to know someone I was interested in. On one occasion, I liked this girl who played soccer. She was very charismatic. She loved to dance and had a smile that would light up any room that she was in. It was hard not to like her. But one day, I was walking home with her from school. And shortly after dropping her off at her place, my mom pulled up and demanded that I get in the car with her. She had been following me the entire time, at a distance, of course. And the whole ride home, I was reprimanded. My ass got chewed out because of that experience. So I didn't date much in high school as a result of this experience. And as I said, I had to learn to do things in secret. So I became really good at keeping things quiet because it was the only way for me to, to meet anybody, to, to get to know girls. I met my now wife in high school during a track practice. And I remember seeing her for the first time and thinking she was the most beautiful girl I had ever seen. I mean, she has these big, beautiful brown eyes and a smile that will stop you in your tracks. She was everything I wanted in a girlfriend. The only problem was that I couldn't date her. So for three months, we dated in secret. We had our secret spot in the back of the school where we would sit, talk about music and sports, and sometimes fantasize about what our future would look like. Unfortunately, I was caught and scolded for engaging in this type of a relationship, and just after three months, it ended. And when I found out I didn't have papers, it all made sense. See, I wasn't told to date only white girls because my parents wanted me to have colored-eyed grandkids. Instead, it was the only way for me to get papers. And once I understood this, things changed. So the question that I present here, how do we arrive to this state of affairs? Why is marriage to an American citizen the only way to adjust status for many people? Let me tell you how I think we got to this point. So for this, we kind of have to backtrack a little bit. So going back to just before World War II, there was a lot of stuff going on, right? The war was happening, the depression, we would just come out of the depression, and there was a, a demand for workers in the fields. So in response to these issues and other concerns about labor shortages related to World War II, American initiatives in the 1940s, such as the Bracero program, allowed Mexican workers in the United States to work the agricultural fields. In response, President Roosevelt signed a bilateral treaty with Mexico in early 1942. Under this system, migrants could come and go reasonably unrestrained across the U.S.-Mexico border. Mexico underwent significant systemic and societal change during this period. The sustained economic boom of, the, of 30 years was fueled by the institutionalization of political stability, the acceleration of the state-led expansion, and the forma formation of internal markets through import substitution industrialization. Mexico's development between 1940 and 1970 was unprecedented, but its effect did not penetrate the rural population. Some say that this was attributed to the agrarian reforms of President Lázaro Cárdenas, 
which gave land rights to millions of agricultural families. However, poor agrarians were not given access to the financial capital necessary to make agricultural lands prosperous. The division of land into crops by the working class proved ineffective for the farmers since they could not buy or sell the land. It was still technically owned by the government. The Bracero program for rural and peasant farmers took place at the right time since it provided many of them with the ability to gain income that they could then use to develop their fields. The Bracero's initiatives for the first two years between 1942 and 1944 saw almost zero undocumented migration from Mexicans on the southern border to the United States. Some estimates suggest that the 22-year initiative, which helped many to become acculturated in English and the American way of life, included approximately 4.6 million Mexican citizens. However, the Korean War's effects, combined with McCarthy-era paranoia, empowered American citizens to push lawmakers to scale back the Bracero program in 1954. Operation Wetback was conducted by the Immigration and Naturalization Services, or INS, which was a well-publicized, two-pronged crackdown on migrants and saw the militarization of the Mexican border. When the United States adopted tighter immigration laws, government officials decreased the number of Bracero visas and criminalized unwanted migration. As a result, the rate of apprehension rose as a direct outcome of Operation Wetback. The demand for Mexican labor in agriculture between 1942 and 1964 functioned as a government-sponsored initiative that set in motion the self-perpetuating forces of cumulative causation. In particular, some Mexican migrants grew accustomed to the seasonal cycles of legal employment through the Bracero program in the American agricultural fields and were not compelled to stop anytime soon. The domestic economic uncertainties, the end of the Bracero program, and the characterization of these same cyclical migrants as criminals further heightened the United States' frustration towards irregular migrants from the southern border. And as a result, a series of restrictive immigration policies narrowed the possibilities for Mexicans and other southern migrants to legally relocate to the United States. Shortly after the Bracero program had ended, the United States passed the the Immigration and Naturalization Act of 1965, which has also been come to known as the Hart-Seller Act. The Hart-Seller Act repealed the former National Origin Quotas Act of 1921, which was meant to ensure that immigration to the United States was reserved exclusively for Europeans. Instead, the Hart-Seller Act favored particular types of, or of groups of uh, immigrants that benefited migrants with citizens and resident alien family members. Those with exceptional abilities considered valuable in the United States were refugees of crime and political turmoil. Now, while it eliminated quotas per se, the policy set limits for each nation with caps for each group. The unintended effects of this act was that it established an annual ceiling of 170,000 visas for immigrants from the Eastern Hemisphere, with no country allowing more than 20,000 visas for the first time. A limit of 120,000 visas was imposed for immigrants from the Western Hemisphere. What's interesting is that 75% of entries to the United States were allocated for close relatives. Direct families, spouses, young children, parents of adult U.S. citizens were excluded from the limitations. 24% of family visas were allocated to U.S. citizens' siblings. The limit of 20,000 per country was expanded to the Western Hemisphere in 1976. In 1978, the global immigrant visa cap was set at 290,000. So, 
restrictions were applied disproportionately to countries with more significant demographics. So what this means is that immigrants from countries with large populations such as Mexico or Brazil had to compete for a limited supply of visas with immigrants from smaller, less populated countries throughout Latin America and the Caribbean. Aspirational migrants were then forced to consider alternative routes to enter the United States if they did not qualify otherwise. The United States started a dramatic change in society during this period with the expansion of civil rights and the Vietnam War threat. Immigrants were becoming easy political targets for exclusion as high inflation, rising unemployment, and dropping wages were seen in the 1970s. Reducing excessive migration became incredibly significant. At the same time, Latin America underwent its own economic and cultural change. Between 1970 and 1980, Latin America saw a shift towards neoliberal economic policies, which were dismantled, and this led to a decline in government expenditure. The primary purpose of neoliberalism, liberalism, if you're not familiar with it, is that it gives priority to the interests of financial capital. And one of the strategies used is the concentration of wealth in a few capitalists' hands by consolidating the economy and adopting austere policies, such as deregulation and austerity in the national economy, opening the way for privatization of public corporations and enterprises that tends to open or widen the private sector's role across the economy and society. So privatization of accessible services such as healthcare, education, water, gas, infrastructure, and public transport can be positive, but is more likely to have detrimental effects on the people because privatization increases the risk of corruption, the misuse of market power, low wages, and marginalized communities being exploited. Some claim that neoliberal free trade policies are not enough to benefit Latin America as a whole, despite its advantages. Many argue that the neoliberal policies of the 1980s and 1990s encouraged the external migration of the rural poor to the United States because they could no longer sustain themselves and their families economically in their country because neoliberalism tends to disenfranchise people. Some argue that the disenfranchisement resulted from a public misinterpretation of economic and social issues that aggravated illegal migration. This misinterpretation of the public causes the broader population to blame immigrants for their country's deeply rooted social problems. Now that the economic situation in Mexico deteriorated and the immigration laws into the United States favored familial migration, how could disadvantaged migrant communities get to the United States legally if they had no family here? And once inside, how did these immigrants ensure they stayed? The only way was they had to marry an American because it was the only way to stay. You see, the former ways of of admissibility were no more. In some way, the United States' restrictive policies forced people to adopt this mentality. And the sad thing is, it's not going to change, at least not anytime soon. And if you're a person with DACA, you know this all too well. According to CitizenPath.com, the most straightforward path to legal status for an undocumented individual is generally through marriage to a U.S. citizen after a lawful entry. The spouses of U.S. citizens are classified as immediate relatives in immigration law, and immediate relatives are exempted from certain rules that would otherwise prevent many applicants from obtaining permanent status, such as a green card. Because of this, an undocumented spouse of a U.S. citizen can adjust status after overstaying a visa, as long as they, as the foreign national or immigrant alien, did not depart the United States. The overstay can be a few days or several years. 
there are no special waivers being necessary for the overstay, provided that the green card applicant has proof of the initial lawful entry and marriage to a DACA recipient, the same rules hold true for these individuals who have been granted Deferred Action for, Ch- for Childhood Arrival, or DACA. As long as the DACA's recipient most recent entry with a lawful entry, he or she may likely appear for a green card after marriage to a U.S. citizen. So for DACA recipients, the lawful entry generally comes in one or two different ways. First, he or she may have used a valid visa to enter the United States with parents. Alternatively, some persons with DACA have previously been able to travel abroad and re-enter the United States with with what's known as advanced parole. Even if their initial entry to the United States was uh, unlawful or illegal, the most recent entry with advanced parole provides a lawful entry for the purposes of adjusting status. On the other hand, a DACA recipient who most recently entered without inspection has the same problem as most other persons who want to adjust status. The lawful entry is essential. He or she may be a candidate for the unlawful presence waiver. If a DACA recipient applies for advanced parole through DACA and returns legally, they can now qualify for an adjustment of status. So as you can see, there is a historical argument for why immigration in the United States and the policies since World War II have kind of created this environment where if you don't qualify for any of the other ways, your only option is to get married. So now that we understand this, especially from the perspective that I just provided, let's take you back to my story. As I mentioned previously, I served a Latter-day Saint mission and I met And after my mission, I met with about a dozen or so immigration attorneys who told me the same thing, that the only hope I had for an adjustment of status was to get married. I hated this. I mean, it it really pissed me off for a long time because the only glimmer of hope for any kind of future in the United States meant that I needed to get married. That meant no going off to college, no backpacking through Europe, or any of the other dreams I had at the time. Not that getting married is like a condemnation, but being forced to because there is no other option that's what sucks. I wonder if this is what being in an arranged marriage feels like. I don't know. I guess I'd have to ask somebody or bring them onto my podcast. But you see, I was upset with my parents because they were okay with this being the only way for me to adjust my status. And so, you know, me being me and trying to make people happy, you know, I attempted to try to date, you know, white LDS girls. But culturally, we were just different. On one occasion, I went to this girl's house and brought flowers as a sign of respect that I wanted to ask for permission to date their daughter. I was raised to follow these types of Mexican customs. The, resp- the response I received from her parents was not what I expected. You see, the father sits me down in, in the living room and asks me if I was serious about dating his daughter. I said to him, yes. He then pulls out the application, no joke, and says to me, fill this out. At first, I thought it was a joke and kind of shrugged it off, but he was serious. And as I looked at the application, the questions he asked were ridiculous, such as, what is your credit score? Do you have children with another person? Have you ever participated in any homosexual activity? And what is your testimony of the church? I delayed filling it out and got out of that relationship as quickly as possible because that's the last thing I wanted to deal with. You know, I mean, it's already hard enough trying to date someone, get them to fall in love with you, and then have to tell them that they're going to have to deal with the whole immigration process. And trying to find somebody who's willing to do that, might as well try to find a needle in a haystack. So then what happened? Well, after this experience, I realized that my life was in the United States. This is home. 
There was no going back to Mexico. It wasn't an option. So I subscribed to doing things the right way. And if the right way meant finding somebody who would marry me and then help me with my immigration stuff because she loves me, then that's what I had to do. And that's when my current wife re-enters my life. You see, there's a popular saying that says, if it's meant to be, let it go. And it'll come back to you. And this is what happened to me. You see, when my wife and I dated back in high school, we knew we cared deeply for one another. There was a connection that was formed that ran deeper than can be described with words. We grew up in two different worlds, and yet we were the same. We longed for each other, but high school was not the right time to cement our love for one another. We hardly saw each other at school because we were on opposite days. She had A-day, and I had B-day scheduling. I was busy with football, and she had other stuff going on at the time that prevented us from preserving our relationship. And naturally, we drifted apart. We lost contact with one another. It wasn't like we ended on bad terms or anything. It was just that the timing was not right. She went on and did her thing. I went and did mine. So for six years, we had zero contact with one another. Periodically, I would see someone that resembled her, or I would hear Frankie J's song, Obsession, and my mind would automatically think of, of my wife. It was almost like... God was reminding me that he had someone for me and that I shouldn't forget her. So when I was on my mission, I had come across in the Bible um, the last chapter of Proverbs and highlighted every quality that I wanted in a future spouse. I told myself that when I I got home that I was going to try to search for that type of a girl. I wanted someone like that, as as was described in Proverbs, to be my wife to be the future mother of my, of my kids. So when I got home, it was kind of the opposite experience. I was actually being pimped out by family and friends. Everyone was trying to set me up. It was cool to go on that many dates like in the beginning, but it was hard because I knew secretly that I was struggling because I had this secret about who I was. I mean, it's not like you tell somebody on the first day of, of, of meeting them that you're undocumented, you can't get a job, and you can't really go to school. This is as close to an automatic turnoff as it is to showing up smelling like a dumpster and looking like you barred your outfit from the homeless guy down the street. I was very reserved because of this. So I was introduced to a gal who was two years older than me. She was sweet, caring, and loved all things Hispanic. Her mother knew that I didn't have papers, and she was still okay with her going on a date with me. I viewed this as a sign that it could go somewhere. I mean, what other option did I have? So we dated for about three months. But we both knew it wouldn't go anywhere, and the relationship ended. And no longer than a week had gone by before I got an unexpected message from on Facebook from my wife. I accepted the request to connect, and she had heard that I went to like Brazil or something on my mission and was asking me how it went. And I told her I didn't go to Brazil. I was here in the United States, and I was I had learned American Sign Language and you know, had done my missionary thing amongst like the deaf and hard of hearing people. And I remember feeling the same butterflies that I had back in high school. So as I anxiously waited for her response, and I know she missed mine, we wanted to see each other. So we met up the next day at the train station. I remember it so vividly. She was as stunning as I remembered her back in high school. And from that day forward, we saw each other every day since. We got married seven months after we reconnected. On our first official date, I told her that I would be honest and sincere, sincere about who I was and what my struggles would be if she, was, if she decided to engage in a relationship with me. I told her that it wasn't going to be easy, but if she was willing to join me on the ride, 
on, on for the ride. I promised that it would be a ride worth getting on. And she accepted to be my partner and promised that she would do whatever she could to help me reach my goals and dreams. She believed in me when no one else did, and she became my rock. So when I look back at everything, the thing that stands out to me the most is timing. I later found out that V, my wife, had gotten out of a toxic relationship just a couple of days before sending me that Facebook request and was planning on being single for a while. And it just so happened that when she went on Facebook and saw that the friends you may know section with me stating that I was back home, she felt compelled to send me the request. And if you know my wife, you know that this isn't something that she would normally do. We both had just gotten out of relationships and we weren't and we were available to start dating again. If she had waited a, a week later to break up with her boyfriend or if I had waited another week in my relationship, neither of us would be available to start dating and the opportunity to reconnect would have passed. Sometimes things are meant for us, but it is up to God when they will manifest themselves in our lives. Sometimes we have to grow and learn before they are ready to be fully embraced. Sometimes we have to learn sorrow and grief to fully internalize the message of the lesson so that we can savor the good times. There's a there's a quote that I love by Bob Ross. If you know who he is, he's that old school painter with the afro. Yes, that guy. He said, if you have light on light, you have nothing. If you have dark on dark, you basically have nothing. Just like in life, you got to have a little sadness once in a while so you know when the good times come. And I'm waiting for the good times now. So if you're f- still feeling... Like you're waiting for your good time, don't worry, it's going to come. If you feel inundated with the frustrations of life, don't worry, it'll soon be over. If you feel alone or that no one understands what you're going through, don't worry, you're not alone. And God will place the right person in your path to help you. And despite the variety of our undocumented stories, there is a common element, which is this happened to us for a reason. And I firmly believe that this challenge, regardless of its difficulty, teaches us to be strong and disciplined to achieve the things that we want. So my advice to everybody listening to this podcast is just hang in there because I can promise you that one day it will get better and one day you will reach your goal, whatever it may be. And that, everyone, concludes this episode of the Dreamer Diary podcast. I appreciate everybody who takes the time out of their days to, to, to listen to this and the many other podcasts that I have. For the next episode, I will have a financial advisor who works with the Hispanic, the undocumented, the Mexican community to help them become more financially literate. So if this is you and you find yourself figuring out, hey, how can I prepare myself financially to be able to buy a home, to be able to go to school, to be able to buy a car, especially right now where there's inflation, things are more expensive, and you're just trying to figure out how to survive, well... This next podcast is for you. So be on the lookout for that. Again, I try to upload on Fridays. Right now, you know, with me working full time, this is just a hobby of mine. But as my podcast grows and more people start listening to this, you know, things may change. But for the time being, you know, you can expect podcast upload on Fridays. It may not be weekly, but I will do my best. And so that's all I got for everyone. Have a good one. And until the next episode.